Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. I will cause the kingdoms of this racist society to become the kingdoms of socialistic freedom. I will cause your desert to blossom as a rose. I represent divine principle, divine socialism. I will not pass away, but I shall stand throughout the endless ages of time. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. What you just heard there was Jim Jones, the cult leader who directed a mass murder of his followers in Guyana on November 18, 1978. And when you hear Jones hold forth like that, his forceful, messianic speaking style, for a lot of us, that's our stereotypical understanding of what a cult leader sounds like. But as anyone who's followed the Nexium story knows, cult leaders come in different forms. And the leader of Nexium, convicted felon Keith Ranieri, is in many ways the opposite of Jones. As he duped followers and seduced women, Ranieri often came across as soft-spoken and humble. He's fairly short, wears glasses, plays volleyball, and awkwardly tells bad sex jokes. How did this man command a cult that spanned several countries and took in millions from Hollywood actresses, the son of a former Mexican president, and two daughters of the Bronfman fortune? To answer these questions, I spoke with cult expert and deprogrammer Rick Ross, whom some of you will know from watching the hit HBO series The Vow, which looks back at the rise and fall of Nexium and its disgraced leader, Keith Ranieri. Rick Ross spoke to me from California. Here are excerpts from our interview. Mr. Ross, how many cults have you had the opportunity to investigate or deal with during your professional career? I think it would be in the hundreds. There are at least 10,000 identified groups that have been called cults in the United States and Canada alone. When people think of cults, often the stereotype that pops up is the guy in the robe who claims to be a prophet and he might have a compound somewhere. One thing that jumped out at me about Nexium is that in some ways it's not a stereotypical cult. It didn't have a compound. The leader didn't claim to be some kind of religious prophet. There seemed to be a kind of self-help money pyramid scheme at the heart of it, which, by the way, some people, even real victims of this organization, say that at least at first was helpful to them. Would you classify this organization as a real hardcore cult, or is it some kind of boundary case? No, I would define it as a destructive cult. There are three core criteria that form the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult. One is that there is a charismatic leader that has absolute authority over the group and has no meaningful accountability, functions as a virtual dictator and is the defining element and driving force of the group. Second, that the group uses thought reform, coercive persuasion techniques to gain undue influence over members through their training, their indoctrination, etc. And then finally, that they use that undue influence to 
exploit and do harm to the members, which varies by degree from group to group. Uh, Nexium, led by Keith Raniere, certainly had all three of those core characteristics and evidence. But what Raniere was different about him was that this was not a religious cult. And I think many people think that all cults are religious, which is not true. They could be political, politically based. They could be a therapy group. They could be an artistic kind of endeavor, a dance group, a martial arts group, a meditation group. Or they could be a multi-level marketing scheme, a kind of business group. So there are many, many different types of cults that have many different facades. But the inner workings, the core characteristics are the same. Are there instances in which a group has a legitimate or semi-legitimate function and then at some identifiable point becomes a cult? Uh, Yes. One of the best examples would be the rehabilitation community started by Charles Diedrich in California called Synanon, which began as a a way to get people off of drugs, uh, substance abuse. Uh, Diedrich was a reformed alcoholic, but it ended up being a cult that was animated by Diedrich, who had total control over its membership and exploited the members horribly. In the end, he was, like Ranieri, convicted of crimes, and he was sued by former members for the harm that he did to them. So a group could start out with idealistic goals, and then because of the power that is held by the leader and the lack of accountability, uh, the leader can become corrupted. And as they say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think in Ranieri's case, he had at one time was a multi-level marketing guru. He had a, an organization called Consumer Byline, which was sued out of existence by numerous state attorney generals that described it as a pyramid scheme. Ranieri then created Nexium. Now, I followed Nexium from about 2002 to the arrest of Keith Ranieri and have dealt with many of his victims. In fact, I testified against him at the criminal trial in New York for the prosecution. And in my experience, and I have met Keith Ranieri and spent hours with him in a court-ordered mediation, he sued me and uh, ultimately lost, and also I sat through his deposition. In my opinion, he was always interested in taking advantage of people, though I would say in 2002-2003, the group was not as, as abusive and horribly destructive as it became. So if you would grade a group 1 through 10, Nexium may have begun as a, a 4 or 5 on a continuum, with the worst group being a 10, like let's say Jonestown or, or Charlie Manson or David Koresh of the Waco Davidians. Ranieri started out as, in my opinion, a 4 or 5, and he ended up being, I would say, an 8 or a 9. One unusual thing about this group is that so much of their activity, including their internal activity, has been recorded on audio and video. In fact, at the heart of the vow is all this documentary footage that one of the protagonists within the group had created in order to create a sort of hagiography of Keith Raniere. Is it unusual in your experience to see a cult whose internal workings are so richly documented in multimedia form, including, in one instance, 
one of their sort of internal struggle sessions where a lot of the women, this is, I guess, about a decade ago, came forward to confront Ranieri, they recorded that too. Is this something new for you? No. There are a number of groups that have done that. Synanon had quite a bit of uh, documentary footage that was filmed within its uh, therapy sessions, its community. The Waco Davidians had a documentary made that showed its inner workings before the standoff that ended in the destruction of the compound. And um, notably, there's a, a documentary called Holy Hell that was done by the videographer that was part of the group who was a, a, a film major who documented the teachings of the guru and what went on inside the group. And he later did a, this fascinating documentary, Holy Hell, which in large part relies on that historical footage. In the case of Nexium, you have Mark Vincente, a well-known documentary maker who made the film What the Bling, when he was ironically a member of a previous cult that he was involved in called Ramtha School of Enlightenment, led by Jay-Z Knight. He then came to Nexium and Keith Raniere, and he was that group's videographer, and of course, that footage ended up being much of the basis for the vow. So that's interesting. You have people who survive one cult and then go to another cult. Is that something you've seen before in your work? Yes. I've often called them uh, by the nickname cult hoppers, <laughs> uh, going, from, going from one group to another. And in fact, one cult group may knowingly recruit the residue of a previous group, which was the case with Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, which is now known as Osho. After Bhagwan was deported from the United States and went back to India, there were groups that would kind of recruit that leftover residue of his followers in Oregon and around the country. And they very effectively kind of mopped up those people. The key, and Mark Vincente and I have talked about this at great length, to not being susceptible to being recruited by another destructive cult after leaving one is understanding what happened to you and unpacking it and, and analyzing it so that you understand that it, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't a particular instance that may have occurred. It was the actual mechanics of the group, the structure of the group that mandated the destructive behavior that caused it to ultimately end your involvement and this is the reason why you should not become involved in another group, because you recognize the mechanics of a destructive cult. And that's, that's why I wrote the book Cults Inside Out, which Mark Vicente read and have a number of ex-Nexium members have read, which explains all of these things. May I ask, do you yourself have any personal history in a cult or perhaps have a loved one in a cult? What, what drew you to this subject in the first place? Uh, a loved one that was confronted by a very radical fringe religious group. Uh, my grandmother lived in a nursing home in the 80s, and a particular group encouraged its members to get jobs at the nursing home in an effort to target the elderly for recruitment and exploitation. Just a horrible thing that they did. Nothing wrong with coming to a nursing home and openly offering yourself for a Bible study or, or something, but to uh, covertly come in and plant members on the paid staff with the hidden agenda 
that, in my view, is extremely unethical. My grandmother was targeted. She was confronted. She was not recruited, but she was very upset by the experience, and she shared it with me, and that caused me to go to the director of the nursing home and ultimately become an anti-cult activist and community organizer. One of the interesting things you see in The Vow, which is this documentary, is this use of text messaging and cell phones to control people. There's this subplot where these master-slave relationships, literally that's what they call them, are created within the female hierarchy, and the so-called master will use 24-7 cell phone technology to seek compliance or gestures of compliance from their so-called slaves. The slaves have to reply with RM, which is ready master, I think. You indicated to me that this compulsive use of video to document the cult's workings, you said that's not uncommon. But is this use of cell phone technology? Presumably that's a new thing because it's so modern. Welcome to the new world of cults. I started doing interventions to get people out of cults in the 80s, often called deprogramming. And now, in order to do an intervention, the, one of the first things that everyone agrees to is to power down all electronic devices in an effort to create an, a dialogue, a discussion without outside interference by the group or anyone else. So this is common. This is a common thing now with destructive cults is the use of the Internet, uh, the use of social media the use of cell phones, streaming, Skype, the use of PayPal to get funds from people. Today, a cult can recruit someone without ever having face-to-face -face contact, indoctrinate them through YouTube, and, social, and contain them within a social media bubble and extract money from them through PayPal and never actually physically meet them. And I have done interventions where people have never met the leader. They've never uh, even attended a lecture by the group. They simply have been recruited online, sustained online. And, of course, they use texting. They use all the uh, technology that we all have become well acquainted with to sustain their involvement in the group. One of the, I guess I'm going to use the word shocking things about looking at Keith Ranieri's group is how studiously he avoided the conventional aesthetic trappings of cults. He dressed in a beyond office casual way. There'd be these weekly volleyball sessions and he just, he looked like some housely guy. He just did not look like what you would imagine an imposing, deeply charismatic leader in any organization would look like, according to stereotype. What was the source of his charisma? He's just the last person you would look at and say, aha, this person is going to attract a devoted following, especially of women. Well, his whole uh, contrived image was that of a philosopher king. He tried to come across as very humble, very modest, even though there were just outrageous claims that he made, such as being the basically the smartest person on earth, having an IQ of over 200, uh, which all, all of this turned out to be lies. He was uh, an average student at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic in New York. And in fact, it took him more than four years to get his undergraduate degree. But he created this image, uh, this facade of this 
professorial, intellectual type of individual who was very soft-spoken, just not a charismatic, forceful personality. And that was by design. I met with him, and what I found, though, was that once you challenged him in any way, shape, or form, that he was wrong about something, that he he might have misconstrued something, he would become quite animated, angry, and get in your face. So he wasn't really this mild-mannered, unassuming guy. He was really an, a very narcissistic megalomaniac. And I would say a person who lacked empathy or or even sympathy for other people that he exploited. And he had no conscience. I mean, this is a man whose ex-girlfriend, Tony Natale, left him. And he stalked her, haunted her, had one of his followers kill her dog. He continued to harass that woman for over 20 years. This is someone who cannot handle anyone rejecting him, uh, disagreeing with him, pointing out that he's wrong. And by the way, not only did he dress bad, he smelled bad. When I would uh, be near him, it was just kind of overwhelming. Apparently, he didn't believe in bathing either. Well, so this is interesting because when I read histories of the last czars of Russia, the same was said of Rasputin, who also, by many accounts, had this incredibly magnetic socio-psychosexual pull. Is there something about the appeal of these cult leaders that overrides our most basic protective senses, including something as basic as an off-putting odor? Well, Rasputin was more like David Koresh, who was very charismatic as well and had this uh, sexual charisma that, that he projected to the women in the group. And I think that none of us are really fully prepared to deal with a cult leader unless we study that subject, read about it, unpack it, understand it. And of course, cult leaders depend upon our ignorance so that they can prey upon us. But I think one of the things that we need to disabuse ourselves of is that there is a certain type of individual that is vulnerable to a cult. It could be anyone. If there's a common thread, it might be that the cult leader, and Ranieri was very adept at this, can smell weakness and focus on it like a laser and then drill down into it and exploit the individual. There are several scenes in The Vow where you actually see Ranieri meet someone for the first time. Uh, in one case, it's a woman. In one case, it's a man. And it, within 30 seconds, he's identified what their unspoken insecurity is. Yeah. And he just twists at it. That is Ranieri. That was his gift. That was his uh, genius, if you will. He wasn't above average intelligence in any other way. But when it came to preying upon people, and he had been doing this, by the way, since he was 10 years old, according to reports from students that went to school with him. He would prey upon people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses as a child, and he developed this and honed that skill over his entire life. And all of the people that I have spoken with that were involved with Nexium, that met with Ranieri or dealt with Ranieri experienced what you just described. And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. 
Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. Jim Jones, of course, was a mass murderer. Yet one of the paradoxical things is that when you look at his personal history, at one point, he was cited by many people, including people who weren't in his cult, as someone who was deeply anti-racist. And despite the fact he was a despicable mass murderer, there are good things in his backstory. By the same token, when you listen to survivors of Ranieri's group, they will say, even people whose lives have been ruined, I'm thinking of Barbara Boucher, will say, you know what, at first he really did help me. She came from a personal background where she had difficulty experiencing love, and she said, he taught me how to receive love. Are there redeeming qualities that you recognize in these otherwise sociopathic narcissistic figures? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but I would, I would, caution people to understand that this is part of their bait and switch con that that they're not going to sell people and recruit people effectively by only showing what is bad or or what is potentially uh, destructive about what they're doing so what they're going to bait the hook with is something good and so Ranieri was good at that. And of course, Jim Jones was very well known for that. I mean, the People's Temple in San Francisco was at one time a megachurch uh, with thousands of members before they went to Guyana and isolated in Jonestown. And he was appointed to some influential role within San Francisco's civic government, if I remember. Yes, Mayor Moscone appointed him to a housing commission. He was very respected. He had a drug rehabilitation program a program to feed seniors. People respected him, but they did not know what was going on behind the scenes. And eventually, former members came out and described the horrible, destructive nature of Jones' church and his, and his leadership. Uh, but the people were very idealistic, very concerned about making the world a better place. And many of the people in Nexium were as well. And I think that's where we, we get this kind of, of false impression of a group. We look at the people who are often very kind, very generous, very idealistic, and we confuse that with who the leader is. One of the interesting things about Ranieri is that he's curiously needy. So, for instance, I believe it was Barbara Boucher, she was describing how she wanted to get out and she was tired of this abusive, one-way polyamorous relationship that Ranieri had created. And Ranieri, he got the other women in his de facto harem to pressure Barbara 
to stay in the cult and tried to convince her it was her fault and it's because of all these psychological flaws she had. And furthermore, they convinced her that Keith was on the couch, she couldn't get up, he was depressed because of what Barbara was doing. Well, yes, in the sense that there's no legitimate reason to leave which is one of the warning signs of a destructive cult, that when you want to leave, everyone is telling you, no, there's something wrong with you. But I'm also thinking of the, the passive aggressiveness and the neediness and the leader presenting himself as hyper-vulnerable and almost childlike. I think Ranieri was falsely portraying that. Uh, I've talked to a number of the victims. Uh, for example, Tony Natale, who lived with him for a period of years, and she left. And he hounded her for over 20 years. And I even had a call from a girlfriend of Ranieri's that he had in college when he attended uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic. And she broke up with him and he stalked her. Ranieri could not allow people to move on. To him, it was rejection of him. Once he possessed someone or he controlled someone. He wanted to perpetuate that control indefinitely. Are there female cult leaders? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, for example, uh, Mark Vicente followed Jay-Z Knight, who has been called a cult leader, uh, and that's the Rantha School of Enlightenment in Yelm, Washington, a very well-known group. And of course, there was a huge group called Church Universal and Triumphant, that bought the Malcolm Forbes Ranch in Montana. And that was uh, led by Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who was uh, one of the most prominent uh, so-called cult leaders of the 20th century. She was very charismatic, claimed to channel heavenly spirits and angels from above. And Jay-Z Knight claims to channel a 35,000-year-old spirit that was a general at the lost continent of Atlantis. In Ranieri's case, uh, he, like many other cult leaders, copied other teachings and then created a composite. So Ranieri borrowed heavily from Scientology, Ayn Rand, Amway, and an organization called Landmark Education, uh, founded by Werner Erhard, uh, previously known as Erhard Seminars Training, or EST, that stages a seminar called The Forum. And then Nancy Salzman, who was his co-leader, she was called Prefect, she brought to the group NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, as a means of persuasion and also hypnosis. And so Ranieri's philosophy, which he called rational inquiry, was really a composite that he copied from other sources. When does self-help become a cult? Does the self-help movement itself inherently lend itself to a slippery slope toward cultism? Well, it can, because many of these seminar leaders become gurus. I would hesitate to call all of them cult leaders, like, for example, Tony Robbins. I would not see him as a cult leader uh, like Keith Ranieri. I would see him as charismatic, forceful speaker. I, I think where they cross the line is when the leader becomes more important than the, the message, when the leader becomes an object of worship, uh, when the leader must always be right and anyone who questions the leader is wrong, and when there's no legitimate alternative or reason to leave, that the group 
has all the answers, that there, there's no other additional groups that you might go to to get additional understandings or, or education or learning. And I think when the group creates the sense that we are the exclusive means of, of gaining truth, we are the exclusive means of helping you repair your life, and they dismiss everyone and everything else, that's when they become very cult-like. One interesting aspect of the way that Nexium convinced people that it had this secret knowledge about the universe, they kept referring to their modules and ideas as tech, as technology. Mm-hmm. And you, you saw this, you see this too as Scientology. I, I mean, when I look at the actual stuff they're, they're peddling, a lot of it's just gibberish. But is this a common thing that the made-up ideas within the cult are presented as a kind of science? Well, absolutely. And Ranieri copied this from Scientology. And Ranieri had an exercise called EMs or Exploration of Meaning that was done with, you know, another member of Nexium, a coach or whatever. And you would do these exercises where you would ask questions to to get at the core of your your problem or or to identify what he called the disintegration. But all of this was copied from Scientology. Scientology has auditing in which you sit in the presence of an auditor who asks you questions and tries to identify the engrams or the the negative reactive mind that needs to be neutralized in order for you to move to the next level and eventually reach clear. So what Ranieri did was he copied it. And he copied even even some of the vocabulary. For example, Scientology says uh, that if you reject Scientology or are critical of Scientology, you might be labeled as a suppressive person or an SP. Ranieri used that exact terminology in Nexium. He described critics as suppressive persons, and he warned his followers to avoid SPs exactly like Scientology does. As the group became more of a tightly controlled cult-like group, I guess about a decade ago, there was more of an emphasis on people from the outside who had bad motives and we needed to be more secret. It became more paranoid. Are there cults that avoid this trap? Or is that just a, a characteristic of all cults that they imagine that there are people who have an agenda to suppress their message? Well, I think that all all destructive cults have a kind of dichotomy, a we-they dichotomy. We are the good guys, and everyone else is potentially the bad guys. However, I think that varies by degree from group to group. Uh, Ranieri became increasingly paranoid because he was uh, getting a lot of bad press. It started with these three analytical papers that were written by two doctors that I published at the Cult Education Institute. One was a forensic psychiatrist, another was a clinical psychologist. Uh, They were quoted in a cover story done by Forbes magazine, and also a psychiatrist, uh, Carlos Ruida, who had treated people that had psychotic breaks and were hospitalized as a result of Nexium training. So as Ranieri dealt with uh, critics, who he would often sue, uh, he sued me for for 14 years. Uh, The lawsuit was dismissed uh, shortly before his arrest. 
uh, but he created a very insular community. People were moving to the Albany, New York area. They were living together in apartments and houses. And there was a core group of like 100 to 200 people that were living as a community in Albany. And were they were very socially isolated. This is a tangent, but you must be at risk of being sued all the time. In the documentary I saw, there was this, this poor woman. She lives in San Francisco now, but she had to spend something like $700,000 on protecting herself from litigation, which I think was funded by Claire Bronfman, who herself, yeah. was a supporter of Nexium, who who's going to jail uh, for her, her role in all this. How can you do what you do and also weather all of the costs associated with litigation? Well, it's uh, estimated that Claire Bronfman funded the litigation against me, which lasted 14 years. She spent about $5 million dollars. And if I had defended myself without pro bono lawyers, uh, which I was very fortunate to have a kind of an army of pro bono lawyers, it would have cost me an estimated $2 million over that same period of time. I've been sued by various cults five times for information on the Cult Education Institute database at culteducation.com. And all of those lawsuits have been dismissed. The most pernicious was the Nexium lawsuit, which lasted for more than a decade. And if it wasn't for pro bono legal help, which I have been so fortunate to have, including the Berkman Center at Harvard, Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., the law firm Lowenstein Sandler, and the partner Peter Skolnick, who represented me for years, if it wasn't for all those wonderful people, I would not be able to do what I do. The EMs you talked about in regard to Nexium, this unsettling technique that is applied to people to, to try and discover their so-called disintegrations. Not surprisingly, whenever anybody in the group is shown to be critical of the group itself, they're immediately subject to an EM, and surprise, surprise, it turns out that their criticism of the group is really just a result of some kind of flaw within them. How much of this idea of disintegrations and imperfections and so forth. How much of that is just an adaptation of the Christian idea of original sin? I think the difference in Christianity is salvation by grace. I'm not a Christian. I was raised as a Jew, but I can appreciate the fact that I don't get complaints from the overwhelming majority of churches in, in North America, or for that matter, in, internationally. Uh, but if you are in a church or an organization that you feel you can never be good enough, and they are constantly keeping you in a state of brokenness. You can see that as a means of engendering dependency. So unlike a Christian church that would say, we are all saved by the grace of God, and, and we are new creatures, and God doesn't make junk, the message in a destructive church like the Jim Jones People's Temple or a group that is not religious, like Ranieri's Nexium, is that you are always broken, and that you are never really fixed, and that you must always be aware of your imperfections, and the group will constantly underscore that in, in an effort to make you dependent upon them to get fixed through them. And now, a brief shout-out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. It sounds like a lot of government officials weren't that interested in investigating until the story of women branding each other with hot irons, like literal branding, until that came out. And it was such a sensational news item that they had to act. How many cults actually imposed this kind of physical deformation ritual on people? Well, I would say it's an expression of a very extreme cult. There are groups, for example, that have very harsh corporal punishment for children that will even have corporal punishment for adult, and they will take an adult before the group and punish that adult physically in front of the group. There are groups where it's expected to subordinate yourself to the leader sexually, and the leader will exploit you. And David Koresh was like that. He even raped children and expected mothers to sacrifice their children to him. For example, Carrie Jewell, who he he raped when she was only 10. But I think that Keith Raniere, it was more personal. He wanted to brand a woman's pelvis with his initials. And this was done with a cauterizing iron with no anesthetic. And he watched through cell phones and and video. He was, in my mind, a very misogynistic, very sadistic individual, very uh, deeply disturbed. And what's really sad about all of this is that even though this was going on, and I was there at the time that this was leaking out, and Catherine Oxenberg, whose daughter India was branded, and I've of course, work with Catherine and, and met with India. They were trying to get the authorities to look into this and getting a major press outlet to run with this story for a long time. And I think if Catherine Oxenberg had not been involved with her name recognition, her celebrity status, her connections, that, that the story might ne- never have been told. But eventually, the New York Times, as you know, ran the story. Uh, But for years, all of these terrible things that were going on with immigration violations, tax fraud, child rape, imprisoning people, sexual trafficking, all of these things that were going on within Nexium that I was aware of, quite a bit of it, it was not being picked up by the authorities, even though people were going to them and giving them the documentation and telling them that this was happening. And I would say a lot of that had to do with the Bronfmans and the money that they spread around. They, they paid lobbyists. They, they knew people in, in high places in Albany. Many of the people who were involved in Nexium were very wealthy, influential people. For example, the son of the former president of Mexico, Carlos Salinas, his son Emiliano Salinas was a pivotal player 
in Nexium and a recruiter in Mexico where they had many members. So when you have heavy hitters like the Bronfmans who controlled over $500 million and they're bankrolling Ranieri and he's got lobbyists, lawyers, PR people, uh, political connections, it's very, very tough to uh, get an investigation going. It wasn't until I, I watched deep into the documentary that I, I realized how fundamental the Bronfman's role was, especially in the litigation. One last question, because I know you have to go. If Keith Ranieri were here with us on the call, do you think that as he goes off to jail, he really does think that the whole thing was benign, that he helped people and that it's the so-called suppressive persons who are the author of his misfortune? I would say that he understands that he manipulated people and that he understands when he lied and when he, when he deceived people. But I think that he is a sociopath. Uh, basically, what Keith Ranieri thinks is there is such a thing as good and bad and right and wrong, and here's how it works. What's right for me is right, and what's wrong for me is wrong. What's good for me is good, and what's bad for me is bad. And the world uh, revolves around me. You know, an intensely narcissistic individual, self-obsessed, who can rationalize virtually anything, and who is in it to win it. And in his mind, anything goes, the ends justify the means. And I think he always understood that the ends for him were sexual gratification, power and control over women, and, and money. Rick Allen Ross is an American cult deprogrammer and founder and executive director of the nonprofit Cult Education Institute. Mr. Ross, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.